you know what it is? actually you know what it is it's creative problem solving mm. that's essentially what what entrepreneurship is you see it as a challenge it's not about the money and it's not mm. about the work life balance that's for sure yeah, yeah. it's it is all about how can i creatively solve this problem and a lot of the time is through business a lot of the time is by starting this spending the time committing to fixing that problem and then following it out to its nature of you either solved it or you didn't solve it right everyone. Welcome back to People Building Businesses, the podcast from YBF Ventures, our first podcast for the year today. My name is Jason Lim. Thanks so much for listening. YBF Ventures helps startups to scale, scale-ups to succeed, and corporates to innovate. We're based in Melbourne and Sydney, and if you want to get in touch with us, jump on ybfventures.com. The guest on this episode today is July co-founder, Ethan Didaskalu. I hope I pronounced it. Well pronunciation. Right. <laughs> very, very good. Quick rundown. July is a direct-to-consumer luggage brand that has had... A pretty stellar and meteoric uh, 12 months, scaling the team from 2 to 20 plus, raising 10.5 million from strand bags and being really one of the breakout Australian success stories. I pass by Emporium Melbourne every day and uh, I I see your store there, uh, probably the best lot in the entire shopping mall, which is pretty, pretty cool. (laughs) You're not just saying that because I'm here, right? (laughs) No, no, no. I actually actually love your branding, by the way. So uh, we'll, we'll dig into that as well. Uh, but, you know, Ethan's here to tell his story. So, Ethan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jason. It's uh, it's great to be here. Awesome. So, I, I've listened to a couple of your, your other interviews. You've done a few, but I don't think any of them have actually... Uh, asked you where you grew up and you know what your what your upbringing was like and that's a question I love to start with so they always want to talk about suitcases they never want to talk about me Uh, (laughs) my my upbringing's uh, relatively relatively um, simple I wouldn't call it basic but Hmm. I I, you know Melbourne born and bred Uh, so I've been I've been here for most of my life Uh, and I, I grew up in Greek in a Greek family I'm Greek background. Uh, my parents are uh, first generation, so it's been a it's been a fun learning go. And and they're actually quite progressive in that sense. Uh, so it's been fun growing up with them. And you know we still hang out quite a bit mm. uh, with with uh, with my folks and my family. We train in the gym every morning. Awesome, which is pretty good. Uh, I think they're pretty young. So yeah. <laughs> actually, my dad's a hundred times fitter than me, which is a bit embarrassing as well. Um, so so I, I've grown up in Melbourne, uh, and I've I've uh, you know I've done a, a few different things. In that time, yep. Uh, but uh, the the majority of it has just been around starting businesses and and trying out new things. Yeah, I guess that's been the, the main gist. Were your folks entrepreneurs as well, or was that where you got it from? Or yeah, they are, but I I don't know if that's where I got it from. Okay. Uh, well, maybe maybe I did. Uh, I think I think what my family, what my folks have set me up for, is uh, just not being so risk averse. I think there's a, an openness to risk in the family. Uh, my dad was actually my, both my parents were insurance brokers. Interesting. So uh, my dad sort of landed into it. Uh, actually, we we're talking about this the other night because I've got family in town, and we were discussing uh, what he used to do when I was born because I've just got a, a child of my own now. And he ha- he was working insurance during the day and then decided to open a Greek restaurant at night, which I thought was pretty funny. You know, I, I didn't really know intense. this part. Yeah. <laughs> really know this part about him so <laughs> so because he always wanted to he hated insurance and always wanted to to open up a, a greek restaurant he, six months into it he realized this was not for him and <laughs> and cut the restaurant out completely and uh, and then went to focus on insurance he uh he went from working for somebody to then opening or starting his own uh brokerage awesome did that for a long time he was one of the the first few businesses on smith street so uh, back in the day, Smith Street back in the day, we're talking somewhere odd, you know, 25 years ago, uh, was a rough spot. I actually quite remember it a little bit. So uh, I don't know if you know where that organic grocery is, is on, on Smith Street, yeah. um, where there's a yoga studio upstairs. Yeah. So they had that top floor and they ended up splitting half of it uh, with a yoga studio, with that yoga studio that's still there today. And by, that was the first yoga studio in Melbourne back then. Wow. That was one of the most progressive, uh, you know, little studios uh, back then. And um, and the, the toilet block across the road was uh, was famous. It was the worst spot in Melbourne. It was it was the one where where everyone would go and get high. So 
um, it was it was quite a rough Smith Street was quite a rough spot, and that's where they started. Uh, <laughs> and, but throughout that time, you know, he's he's worked in insurance, and, and so has my mum as well. Um, but they've always done different things. Uh, you know, uh, you know, my dad's done a few different import export businesses, property. Uh, my mum, my mum's actually a great entrepreneur. Like she's the 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 sleeper in that in that relationship because she went and did her thing. She went and decided, well, I want to be a dressmaker. So she has this ability, this amazing ability to never fear going back to basics and knowing nothing. That is a, a is a skill in itself. So she's like, I'm going to enroll in in Box Hill TAFE and learn how to be a dressmaker spent her time doing that, then went and volunteered for somebody to go and work with them and, and just eventually kept building her skills and, and now she's amazing. Um, she decided to open a shoe store. So, you know, flew to Milan, found a, found one of the, um, you know, those sort of, uh, what are they called? Trade shows. Okay, yeah. You know, and started importing shoes, opened up a shoe store in, in Chapel Street. You know, she's she's just got no fear. So I guess that, that culture's kind of been built in a little bit. Okay. Um, and I, And if I have to... If I have to reflect and post-rationalize, I reckon that this this sense of uh, you know no fear or the fear of failure is not really a thing um, is probably the one thing that they've, they've distilled in me. So, so what do you think are the other drivers of you jumping into being an entrepreneur as well? If if you know parents one side are bringing one side, was it something else that was innate in you that you know that caused you to want to be an entrepreneur? You've started a few things, and, and we'll jump into it. But yeah, what 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 will you attribute to that entrepreneurial spirit in yourself? I mean, you're, it sounds like you want a highbrow answer, and I don't. Ha- I don't have one. I've That's only got lowbrow yeah. stuff. No, lowbrow is great. <laughs> the, the, the 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 my past has been riddled with these moments of like, I've got an idea. We should do this, and we should do that. Um, and anybody who's worked with me in the past knows that every few months there's another idea that oh, wouldn't it be good if we just if we just did a bit of this. Um, you know, it's it's a quite a fun way to live, and maybe you can you can bring it back to a uh, a lack of focus and concentration. You're always <laughs> jumping to the next thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I've I've always had a lot of fun with it, and uh, and I guess it. You know what it is? actually? You know what it is? It's creative problem solving. Mm. That's essentially what what entrepreneurship is. Um, you see it as a challenge. It's not about the money, and it's not mm. about the work life balance. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is all about how can I creatively solve this problem? And a lot of the time uh, is through business. A lot of the time is by starting this, spending the time, committing to fixing that problem, and then following it out uh, to its to its to its nature. Of you either solved it or you didn't solve it, right? Sure. I actually think that's what it comes down to: uh, problem solving. So, what was the first ever company you started? The first uh, ever business? I think it was. I think it was a consultancy. I think it was a social media consultancy. Right. Um, was this DDAS? In yeah. I mean, 08? you've looked through LinkedIn. Yeah, and you've, I've, you've seen I've some done a bit stuff. of digital stalking. Yeah. 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 Thank, mean, thanks, our producer Joe. As well. <laughs> there's there's some stuff in there. I mean, essentially, what I did. Uh, one of the first ones out of uh, out of uni. Actually, I, what had happened was I'd, I'd finished uni and I applied for to get a job at Xbox. Oh, cool. And so I went through the the interview process and I, f- I failed miserably um, and it was my first uh, it was my first lesson in in sales because they asked us to, to sell a fictional product they gave us this product and they said you know tell us how you'd sell this and you know I was quite a confident and, and arrogant young man I, I was like well it's got this it's got that it's got all the bells and whistles and I spent around five minutes talking about this product and I failed. And they said, yep, thank you. No, thank you. Here's, here's your letter. I was like, you got to give me some feedback. Sure. What did I do wrong? And they said, uh, you didn't ask us anything. You, you know, in order to sell something, you need to know what the problem is. Uh, and you need to, you know, you need to talk to the person you're selling to. And the more that they're talking, the better the sales process is going. And she said, you didn't ask us anything at all. And from there, that was, that was a big lesson for me in, in sales uh, and and essentially how to do business i still remember to this day um so what i did from there was well i said well i'm not going to go and keep applying for jobs now um i want to start my own little thing and i i felt like back in the day i was quite tech progressive uh do you remember tumblr yes yeah oh wow tumblr pre pre verizon was it or oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. we're talking we're like yahoo. early days yeah, yeah oh, yahoo geez. i think yeah. it was yahoo very early days tumblr yeah. right tumblr Back in the day, was super progressive. Yeah. It was it was a very cool platform, 
Um, but what made it actually quite quite easy to use was its back end. Its CMS was oh. actually really, really clean and lovely. It's basically five things to pick from. Um, in you know, you you're posting a photo, you're posting a video. The UX in posting wasn't like that ever before, Tumblr. Yep. So what I would do is I would set up uh, websites for small businesses using Tumblr as the platform and obviously the Tumblr app as the CMS. Interesting. That's a good. That's an interesting way to approach it. Yeah, because small business owners don't actually know how to update a website. Right. So once it's built, you want to make the blogging platform feel like a website format with constant updates that they could do themselves. That was my that was my first uh, my first startup, my first business. And did, was it successful? Yeah, I mean, I'm told, I made some money out of it, yep, but yep. Um, at the end of the day, you know, it's uh, when you're when you're fresh out of out of uni and I've got no idea what you're doing. Uh, the sales process is always the hardest, right? Like finding new clients and filling the funnel and building it out. Um, so eventually, I, I ended up shutting that down. And uh, and then getting a full time job. Okay, I think I got the full time job first. More than I got the, than I got the, then I shut it down. Yeah, it was more the fact that I was work- I ended up starting working somewhere else. Okay, so that was a DT that you worked at, and somewhere in between, you started uh, Three Thousand Thieves, which is apparently Australia's largest online coffee. Retailer. Apparently, <laughs> apparently, <laughs> you know, numbers pending. <laughs> numbers pending. But uh, what was the story behind Three Thousand Thieves, and how did you, how did you start that up? Yeah, it was. Um, it was interesting, right? Because I, I'd started at DT, and DT was amazing. Uh, some of the, some great people have come out of DT, and they're actually quite entrepreneurial themselves as a business. Um, so they supported fresh ideas. They supported this kind of you know creative thinking, creative problem solving. Um, we'd started in the strategy team. You end up pitching this work, right? That doesn't always get through. You think the ideas are great, mm. but often, you know, it's up to the client. You know, you've probably got a 5% strike rate for, for a lot of the ideas to go through to the to their final realization. Um, we found ourselves selling things and promoting things that uh, we probably tangibly hadn't actually done ourselves. So uh, we started businesses. We started these little concepts, these little ideas within the strategy team to to see if we could we could actually action some of the things that we were talking about. And I had started 3,000 Thieves as a coffee subscription to test things like subscription subscription payments, e-commerce, shipping out things. Started off as a test, just a, a small experiment. And uh, and it grew naturally. Like it was a full organic growth business. I didn't spend a cent on ads. Maybe like a little bit of promoted posts back in the day. Right. Like $10 tops. Like really like not that much. It was 100%. I mean, it was it was a slow growth. Um, but, but organic nonetheless. And so we'd started this business, just kept growing and growing. And eventually we had to make a judgment call. I had to make a judgment call and say, well, is this, is this something I'm going to, I want to focus on or, um, is it time to drop? You know, when you start any side business, any side hustle, you know, there's this, there's this culture of promoting, you know, you need to be doing side hustles. You need to be hustling, 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 do whatever you can. Right. Yeah. But. If your side hustle is any good, your your primary job, your primary source of income is going to suffer. It's true. Something has to give. Something has to give. So a lot of people don't realize that when they're doing side hustles, if they're, if they're actively doing 10 other things, those nine things hmm. are probably not doing very well. It's about focus. It's about focus to a degree, right? I, if, you, if you're doing it for, for a handover in the future then that's what you want. That's the goal. Mm. But if you're constantly always keeping this thing on the side, then if you know it's either not growing, or uh, or it will grow, and your primary your primary job will get you get shit at. So um, I was getting shit at my job. Okay. So essentially. <laughs> so then you made the the call to shut down three thousand thieves, or, or, or is it still running? No, no, right? it's still running. No, yeah. three thousand is still running. It still does phenomenally yep. well. Yep. Um, they they it continues to grow. Uh, like it's it's a great business, and it's a great business because it solves a problem. Yeah. Uh, not to not to pitch too much about three thousand thieves, but <laughs> it solves a problem that there's new coffee roasters every day, and most people don't get exposure to it. Uh, most people don't. Uh, they only get coffee from either near home or near work. There's a lot of great roasters out there. There's a lot of great coffee out there. Um, all we are is a platform for these roasters to get out there and get their name out there. Um, it's a it, it was a real problem. Okay. So it helped it helped that. That's where the growth has come from. Yeah. The roasters can't get enough of us. 
because uh, they just they just need to get out. They get, need to get their name out there because they've only got their small communities around yeah. them. And Melbourne's a great place to do it. Everyone here loves coffee. Everyone in Melbourne, everyone in Australia, everyone in the world is is knows Melbourne yeah. for for their coffee. Um, so it was a great thing to run, and I, I really I really enjoyed it. You know, okay. had a lot of support from Australia Post. Uh, awesome. We we you know we 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 grew phenomenally. It was, it was a lovely business. Okay, it's a really cut my teeth into uh, a startup where there was a hundred percent bootstrapped. Um, 100% owned by May. Uh, you know, we we sort of you know organic growth, it, subscription. Like it was everything was just great about that. That the when you talk about the metrics, the metrics of that business were phenomenal. Okay. Yeah, they were really really good. So so why July then? What what was the catalyst behind starting? You know your your current venture July. So I mean, what what ended up happening was a few other things in between that. Uh, you know, the, I started a, a series of co working offices yes. as well. Neighborhood called Neighborhood. Yep. Um, which uh, which was fantastic too. It was a great way to connect with other other creative people, and um, we actually just really loved the warehouses that we, we built. It was it was actually more the fact that we wanted to live in these warehouses. We couldn't afford the rent, so yeah. we're like, well, why don't we spend our days here uh, by uh, by turning into co working? Creative problem solving. There you go. Is it, that was exactly it. Uh, I, I genuinely, I'm not just saying that. Genuinely, I, uh, Adam Morris from um, from Studio Today or Today Design. Uh, was, uh, you know, I was doing a bit of work with him and I said to him, Adam, if you ever leave this building, this is at Four Brunswick Place, if you ever leave this building, please let me know. I would love to live here. <laughs> and and he, you know, he kept his word. He was like, look, we're going to move to a bigger place. Do you want it? I said, yeah, for sure. Of course I want this place. And then I saw the rent bill. I saw the heating bill. <laughs> you know, if you want to heat a double-story yeah, yeah, yeah. warehouse, oh my god, man! Oh, well, not a lot of insulation in that place. There's not a lot of insulation, <laughs> but there's a lot of cash just seeping through those windows. Oh yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, I was I was working with my partner Steve at the time, um, who were, we were we were working together on a consultancy, mm. um, on a on a strategy consultancy. We'd actually gone to WeWork to mm. have a look at some offices. And we weren't that impressed. We, you know, we, we did the hard hat tour. They showed us the box that we were going to get for, for three and a half grand a month. And we're like, this is, this is ridiculous. There's no way that, that people are paying this. We can do this better. And, and so uh, it started off as a bit of a creative problem for ourselves in terms of where we were going to house this, this consultancy. Yep. But as we were, the deeper we got into co-working, the more we realized that, well, you can't just do one. You have to do more. And you have to become a thing. What are you going to stand for? You know, as we were, as we were talking about offline before, what is the the focus of the the business and the co working? Co working particularly needs a niche. Absolutely. Um, for us, it was the fact that um, if you've ever worked in in more creative co work offices, it's always you always walk in with neon signs. Uh, telling you to hustle more. It's true. Yeah, and, yeah. And, I can see it in my head. Yeah, yeah, and a ping pong. There's always a ping pong table. You know, if you sit next to a ping pong table and you you don't play ping pong, oh nothing can drive you more crazy than the constant sound of a plastic ball hitting the table. It is it is mind breaking. So we had, we started it. We were like we made a clear rule: no neons, <laughs> <laughs> and no table tennis tables. And we maintain this um, library style uh, quietness to the to a space to allow creatives, particularly particularly creatives who are introverts, mm. who just need play, a place to think. That was that was how we positioned ourselves, and we ended up getting quite a lot of quite a lot of love from it. We ended up getting quite a few people yep. anywhere. Any, we, we got a lot of people from Creative Cubes in yep. the Commons, ah. uh, or anyone who sat near the table tennis tables. Yeah, yep, it was yep. it was like a great positioning statement. You, you found your niche. We found our niche. <laughs> we found our niche. No table sports. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I digress. So, so uh, you know, uh, I'd come to meet Richard, my my business partner for July, during this this stage. Um, you know, because both of the the co work spaces are are in Fitzroy. Mm. Um, it's only a block away from this absolutely lovely coffee shop yep. uh, called A Coffee, uh, and and that's where we used to spend the majority of our time. Okay. You know, and so I would bump into this guy and all, you know, when you always see the same person over and over again, you end up get chatting. Yeah. Do you have a favorite cafe around here? Is that I, the same I, Patricia region? Coffee just Patricia. around the corner. Yeah. Patricia is a great one. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, you, all, you, you tend to know people, you tend to know the regulars and I know BW there from A Coffee and I know all the guys there uh, because of 3000 Thieves, right? So, yep. Yep. Um, you know, it was, it was a lovely place. And, and as I, as I came to know Richard, he, I, he was this other guy that. I've I I 
don't really know. I don't know how to associate with. He's like a super numbers driven, very methodical, brilliant genius guy, right? Definitely not me in that sense, you know. But this guy's like, like just on the spectrum smart and, um, and, and knows how to manufacture, knows supply chain stuff. All this stuff I had no idea about especially performance marketing as well. Mm. That was kind of like a hybrid, uh, our hybrid area. If you think of us as Venn diagrams, performance marketing is like this middle bit where it's about marketing, but it's also really numbers driven uh, and metrics driven, which I, I never cared too much about. Right. You know, I was like, don't worry if the creative's good and the product's good, they'll, you know, it'll eventually they'll come. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's slower, but that we'll get there. Um, so, you know, we would chat about these things where I would be like, can you tell me some performance stuff? Like, how would I structure this performance campaign for Neighbourhood and 3000? Mm. How would I do this? How would I do that? You know, our supply chain, you know, th- I'm thinking about getting this manufactured. You know, we'd talk about things. And and in turn, he'd be like, well, you know, he was working at, um, or he'd founded Brosa yep. at the time. Uh, and Brosa, again, super successful furniture business. Yep. Um, but th- back then, the issues they were having were... Uh, brand performance was getting way too expensive because most of their traffic and most of their sales were coming from um, stealing uh, stealing traffic from people who were looking for other bits of furniture. Right. Away from Ikea. and Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're looking for a coffee table they're just trying and sneak you in but there was no brand recognition. They weren't mm. getting any of the organic. Sure. Um, and, they, and the performance was suffering because people weren't recalling Brosa by brand. Gotcha. So, so there was this, he's like, how do we build this? How, you know, we, we were talking about like inspiration, top of funnel stuff. You know, what else could you be doing at Brosa? Like you guys need to be doing catalogs and photo shoots. You know, you guys really need to be part of that inspiration process and you need to start making furniture that nobody else is making. Mm. Like you need product designers. You're like, you need to really be at that. You got to be known for something. You got to be known for something, right? So, you know, anyway, whether they did or they didn't, it doesn't really matter, right? This was the this was the sort of conversations yeah. that we'd have. Interesting. Over coffee, right? It is, right? You're yeah. just like, you know, it's an hour, two hours gone, and then you're like, oh, wow, I feel like I've learned something. That's yeah. great. So you clicked instantly with, with Richard. Yeah, exactly. You know, so we uh, we, we, we got along great, you know, very much a, a, a yin-yang type of relationship. So, um, and, and so, you know, it just so happened, like, again, creative problem solving as, we, as we're sort of describing it now. Um, we were looking at the, the direct-to-consumer space in Australia and sort of seeing that it's not really a thing here. Mm. Um, you know, you definitely see it in the US. People understand it in the US. True. Uh, in Asia, almost completely not. Mm. Uh, in Europe, a little bit. But in Australia, direct-to-consumer, people t- typically think of it as online only. Yeah, gotcha. And you've, you've only got a couple of brands in there like Koala or... I don't know, sleeping... Like, mattresses seem to be pretty popular, but... Can you name me another one that's not a mattress? Ooh, July. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, two years ago? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a tough a, game, right? It is really tough, yeah, yeah. So, uh, direct-to-consumer was, was just this... It's a great business model. Yeah. And it, it's a business model that we've only been able to afford to do now because the 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 struggle the difficulty the barriers in manufacturing and bringing product over and then marketing that same product have reduced significantly um it's it's i wouldn't say it's easy but it's a lot easier to do it to do it now than it was so we um we found ourselves in admiration of the direct-to-consumer space um and then thought well how can we let's look at some broken industries in australia australia new zealand sort of Typically, what ends up happening is that you have these absolutely massive dominant players who have just been the established incumbents for so long. Um, there's, there's actually a lot of opportunity to, to innovate. Mm. I think the Iconic did it quite well right. in like trumping uh, Meyer and, and David Jones. Um, you know, there's, there's, you, you get these brands with like there's, there's one or two big players and at Kogan, again, with Harvey Norman. It's true, yeah. So, so we're looking at the Australian landscape and we're going, what's broken here? Um, and we came to we came to understand that the luggage industry and the bag industry is is pretty much dominated by one player, um, and it's a player that's been around for a long time. They have a multi brand strategy that they roll out, so you think that you're buying other people's brands. Mm. And we thought, well, okay, you know, in order to tackle to tackle this beast, uh, what we need is we actually need a really strong product manufacturing supply chain front. We need a really strong marketing, uh, front-heavy campaigning front. 
we need the brand to to resonate. This is you know this luggage is not something people think about too often. True. Um, you really need to to break through and, and become an interesting brand. You know, no such thing as boring categories, only boring brands. So we thought we can break through. Um, we don't want to be a, a koala in the sense where there's this sense of irreverence and jokey and Australianness. Right. With the uh, IKEA anti-IKEA ads and all that kind of exactly. stuff. They've yeah. done great for their category, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. But but we did we didn't want to go down that path mm. for, for this. So we, we we made a commitment. We said we, we're going to keep this as a as a premium brand, and we're going to focus on the direct to consumer narrative. Um, so that hopefully we can try and educate the Australian audience to understand what what we're trying to do. And so that's how it started. We're like, okay, well, we should do, we should do some luggage. This is great. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we got excited about it. We started drawing things. We started researching things. Um, and, and, you know, the biggest thing, actually, the, the biggest thing that we did is just read reviews. Yeah. It's like the, the, the most free research you could ever get. Uh, and, and most people ignore them. If you read every review out there, they're available. They're, it's it's cr- it's crazy how much people ignore reviews. Okay. Um, so we read it, almost every review we could, and that was the basis that set the framework for our product design brief. Yep. So you then registered the business on the 7th of July, 2018, I, I think. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You've really done your research. What's on those notes? We, yeah. we did a lot of stalking. Wow, uh, beforehand. That's, that's pretty good. So, so what had happened was um, it was... <laughs> It was late June when we were registering. The, when we were like, this is the name. This is what we're going to, you know, we love this idea of July being a great time of year to travel and a great time of year to, to go overseas. And uh, Aussies and Kiwis love traveling in July. So we we're like, this is it. July's great. Nobody's got the handles, which yeah. is fantastic. Um, let's register. Uh, and actually Richard, in, in his wisdom, was just like, let's wait until the 7th. <laughs> 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 so we like so we waited a week to to make sure that we could get seven of the seven you know quite an auspicious kind of numbering true yeah um you know and and it's and it's nice it's a week difference you know but it it's it's a nice little story yeah we were, we were sitting there ready to do it we were gonna hit execute on all yep, things yep. it's like just let's wait till let's wait away hoping no one else you know? registers the name <laughs> well in the that's meantime. that's the funniest <laughs> thing right when you've got this idea you just you yep. need to get it done now it's yep. like domain names you're like if i don't buy it right now yep. for sure someone's coming in a week yep. and buying and, this and thing and you just know? rename it august and go 0808 or something you there's know? somebody at GoDaddy <laughs> just looking at all the searches <laughs> yeah, yeah. that nobody purchases and they're like yeah you know i'm gonna i'm gonna take that one yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny uh so Registered 7th of July and officially launched in February 2019. A couple of months in between. What happened then to to help you start up the business? Did you did you source manufacturers in the meantime or? Yeah, yeah. Um, so from July to Feb, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I mean, so many things, right? So, um, what do we start with? I mean, we started with the the design stuff, mm-hmm. um, and uh, because once you've got the design, only then do you start going to manufacturers. Uh, we, so we got the design, um, uh, John from one design office helped us out as an industrial designer there. Okay. Um, you know, sort of taking the points that we'd wanted to focus on and realizing them, you know, in a beautiful design. Um, and then, and yeah, and then we went to China and started looking for manufacturers. Okay. It's definitely Richard's forte. Um, and the biggest thing that we'd found was that, you know, you're coming up against large players with large volumes. That was our biggest challenge, is that we're finding suppliers that would believe in us. And w- one of the key things I've actually learned from Richard uh, is that you not every factory will do everything just because you've got an order. Um, you have to build the relationships with factories. You have to build all the relationships with manufacturers. Um, and they've got to believe in your vision for growth. Because if they don't, they, will, they, will, they may just get the job done. Uh, but that's where you start to suffer quality issues. It's where you start to, you know, somebody else comes along with a bigger order, you lose a production time slot. Right. Um, you really have to build the relationships with them. So a lot of people, especially Australians, love to think they can go to China and just jump around different factories and just whatever the cheapest price is, they'll, they'll do that. Um, what I've come to learn is that the, the better way to do it is to find partners, find manufacturing partners that believe in the growth path, that believe in the brand, and we'll then sit with you and work out the next 12 to 24 month schedule, um, lock in those slots, lock in quality control measures. Um, and, and you really start to, you know, these are people that you start to spend some, some serious time with. Mm. So 
uh, that's what we did. We began the, that journey, you know, and you're finding people who are like, well, we, you know, we work with X company, so we can't do this, or we work with these guys. And so you, you really get blocked because you, you don't know what your initial order is. Right. You know, a physical product is another world. Yeah. But you have to commit to a container or two. Yeah, it's true. And a lot of companies, a lot of direct-to-consumer companies start by, by doing Kickstarter campaigns to raise the initial funds to then sink into the initial stock or whatever it is. But you guys didn't do that. You, you no. sort of just popped up one day with like, hey, this is our website. We've got stuff now. Do yeah. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. How'd you do that? Well, you know, Kickstarter, if you've been on Kickstarter lately, it's all bags. I don't know if it's just because I get retargeted the bags because <laughs> I'm in the game, but yep, yep. Um, it's it, there are so many Kickstarter bags. There are backpacks. There's this, is that, you know, and some of them are really great. There's a couple of US brands that do really, really well. Um, but outside of that, everybody's just seen what's going on. They're like, well, we'll, we'll do a bag now. Mm. And um, and not, no one has any product. It's all just renders and, and marketing pitches. Yeah. Uh, to get the to get the early funds, we didn't want to. The Kickstarter audience is quite male heavy and techy, mm. and we didn't particularly want to brand ourselves as a Kickstarter brand. Mm. Um, so that was a first judgment call we made that that hurt us a bit as well, you know, because we didn't get the money up front. Right. So um, so once we had our we we made that judgment call. Once we had a, a, our product and a bit of progress, um, we the container got delayed, uh, so we missed the Christmas the oh, Christmas drop. Ouch, yep. So that we knew it was coming in February, uh, but what we did, uh, we were able to get uh, leather tags. And so we offered free uh, personalized leather tags in December for anybody who pre-ordered a, a suitcase. Interesting. And beautiful. We boxed them up so nicely and we, we personalized them ourselves. Yep. We bought a... We bought a, a, le- a leather stamper. Ah. Um, you know, we went we went all out. Yep. But it was it was literally Richard and I in the in in neighborhood in those days. Just in, the in two of you. Just the two of us, just like stamping. <laughs> you know, we got so good yeah, yeah. at stamping leather tags. The unglamorous side of uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. everyone's like, "Great, free leather," and and it got us our first container. You know, it, like sold, which was great. Oh, it was our yeah. own little like pre-sale moment. Um, but somebody has to stamp those tags, right? And what was marketing <laughs> like in, in the early days? Because no one, like, I'm guessing when you launched, no one knew who July was and, you know, what, what you guys did. So how did you reach your initial customers? A lot of it, a lot of it was an organic push with, with friends and family. Um, you know, it's, sometimes it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a particular category and product that is interesting that people just don't realize is that you're talking about. You're talking about starting a luggage company. It's quite a strange thing. And I, I think, I feel like our networks are maybe big enough. Right. That got us over the line. Uh, but we had some early press as well, which was great. Um, so it, it ended up being just this, this lovely organic push. I can't attribute it to any one thing. Yeah, okay. And what do you think led to that organic success? Was it the fact that you had a good brand or an interesting brand or interesting story behind it, the two founders or... Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm the brand guy, so I'm definitely going to say it was the brand. Yeah. <laughs> it was all you. <laughs> it was nothing to do with the product. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, I think that you can attribute it to a lot of different things. Um, I, I always talk about the importance of having a strong social handle. Um, by having a strong social handle, you justify your existence being there. You justify uh, why, you, why you are there, why you exist. Uh, and it's a shortcut to a trust to 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 a trust profile. So, you know, you are, you know, you're seeing this brand now, and you see, you know, X Y Z underscore official, and you're like, mm, okay, you know, it, it doesn't doesn't click straight away. But if you say something like, I, I noticed when when I saw um, seed, yep. uh, you know, that's been promoting lately, which is like a probiotic okay, tablet thing. Tablet, yeah. yeah, right. I was just like, oh yeah, cool. The packaging looks cool, but the you know at seed, I was like. Oh, well, that's, you know, that's interesting. It says really small in, in this sort of day and age now, like the, the domain name isn't as important yep. as the, the handles. Yep. And um, I find like just by saying such a handle, you automatically shortcut yourself, shortcut us into the trust group. You're like, okay, right. right. These are not, you know, just some Kickstarter brand. That's right. Yeah. They, yep. These guys must, must be here for a reason. Yep. And at some point you changed your URL from getjuly.com to july.com. Yeah, when we yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Sometimes it's nice to also have the domain yeah, name as well. A, that's a pretty that's a pretty cool URL. How'd you get that? Yeah, I mean, so so we were trying to figure out what to get. You know, obviously we couldn't get July.com early days, yeah. right? Because we didn't have any cash, and um, and so I, the conversation was like, well, if it's good enough for Dropbox, it's good enough for us, right? So good Dropbox used to have getdropbox.com. Right. We're like, 
if it's good for them, it's good for us. Let's just get July. And it, and it's quite a nice, like, you know, app call to action. Yeah, you know? yeah. and it's it's a consumer trust because you, you go to July.com, it's kind of like, it, you know, it seems like you're an income, like not an incumbent, but like a reputable That's right, that's right. Brand, established brand. That's right, yeah. So, so uh, look, later on, you know, we had the opportunity to buy it uh, and, and we did, yep. you know. Uh, it was after our funding, after everything else, we're like, well, you know, now it's time to escalate it a bit. Yep. It actually helps from a global standpoint too. So Interesting. we were like, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's time and it's a cool it's a cool email it's a really nice to have a july.com email <laughs> it is. Yeah. july is really interesting because you, you seem to defy what people think about direct-to-consumer and what to do with direct-to-consumer and I'll, I'll i'll jump into another example you you opened a retail store in emporium before you even raised a single dollar from any external investors like i could be wrong we had angel we had angel. an angel investment yep. yeah yeah but before you raise any any large sums of money, which is quite different to what a lot of the other kind of direct-to-consumer companies do, which is limited or no physical store. What was the decision behind that to, to open an Emporium of all places? Because I'm guessing it's not cheap to, to rent space in Emporium. Yeah, either. we're crazy. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, re- that's half of it. Yeah. Um, it, it comes down to, it comes down to, if you are, if you understand your audience and your product, Genuinely, and are committed to going, we'll do what, what it takes to make sure that we can live up to our promise and we live up to the standard that we're trying to trying to achieve. There is no other answer than than opening physical retail. Mm. We are talking now. We're a travel company selling luggage for people who are leaving, and a lot of people are leaving the next day. Whatever the day is, a lot of people leave the next day. Yep. There is just some things, especially in Australia you can't achieve just on e-commerce. So it is a commercial opportunity. It wasn't just a, a branding exercise. It was a commercial opportunity to open up a, a physical retail store because we knew that there was an audience there who are like who are just constantly looking at their watches going, I've got to go. Yep. Can you get me something right now? So even four-hour delivery, like it's something that we see even over Christmas. In the last, uh, Christmas is huge, but in the last three days leading to before Christmas Day, online drops completely. Interesting, because there is just no trust in in the uh, the in shipping. shipping. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, in the shipping side of things. When will it? Uh, Ozpost couriers. Who knows what's going to happen? Uh, you know, Australia doesn't have that confidence yet that it will arrive when it says it's going to arrive. Right. So uh, there's there's something magical about a physical store. I don't know what you're like with your Christmas shopping, right? But there's super last minute, super last minute, right? Yep. So you know, Chadson, 24 hours. I'm yep. I'm leaving there with all the stuff. True. Um, so there there are just some things that are they're inherent there. They're um, they maybe a bit old school, but you 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 have that belief, that yep. trust that I can solve my problem yep. instantly just by going. Um, and so we we started looking, and we got very lucky with the spot that that we got. Um, and we want to we want to roll out a lot more, right. uh, just because they they it is that opportunity to experience the product. There's all these beautiful brand things, right, where you can touch it, you can see it. Yeah. We run events there. People love going to the store, but the reality of the situation is, people just want to leave with product. Yeah. And we ship for free anywhere, uh, gotcha. anywhere that they want to in from the store, regardless of order size. If if they you know because we we have free shipping Singapore New Zealand uh-huh. uh, China Hong Kong um, they can buy an entire set and not have to take it from the store yep. and we ship it there we'll ship it same day if they're if they're um, wow. in Melbourne but nobody does nobody right. wants to they all want to leave with the product because they're all leaving they want to feel it they want to touch it and that's right yeah as well yeah so I think the other thing that the retail store has done for you guys and this might be a bit of an embellishment by media or whatever it is but apparently when you closed your 10.5 million round it was because the CEO of Strandbags happened to be walking by and ran into your store and kind of went oh this is interesting and these guys look like disruptors. Uh, it was after. No, it was more. It was more. Uh, we'd already, that wasn't the beginning of the conversation. Yep. Okay, yeah, gotcha. yeah. The, the, that was more towards the, right. the end. So, so, what was the start like? What was the beginning? The start was quite funny. So, um, we uh, we <laughs> our social media strategy is like if you're a little bit of a hater, we just block you. <laughs> we okay. just we just block you yep. straight out. Okay. Like, you know, ain't nobody got time to listen to haters yep. talk. You know, like, well, <laughs> well, you know, that's that the the blue's not the right blue. Like, I, you know, we don't care. Like, you know, we're doing our thing, and you know, you're either on the journey with us or you're not. Um, we, you know, we, we don't have time for it. So, you know, if it's a complaint or things like that, it's a different issue. But we're talking about haters who just see an ad and they just feel like complaining for the mm. sake of it. So, uh, we don't have time for it. So we block them. Um, and. Uh, 
what we 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 at the, those early stages we were sort of looking at everybody who was interacting with the brand on social and you know we sort of just jumped a couple of profiles in to see who they were and uh, and we noticed or well, somebody had reached out uh, over messages over dm instagram dm and it was felicity who's the the gm at um, or md at at strandbacks and uh we're like oh this person's definitely a competitor yeah like they're just they're just sussing us out right block <laughs> just straight up blocked her Ooh. Uh, and and <laughs> she got upset, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so she jumped on Facebook Messenger yeah. and um, and messaged the page. And she's like, "I think you blocked me on on Instagram. I just wanted to have a chat with you guys." And and people were like, "Oh, this sounds this sounds dodgy." Yeah. yeah. Okay, we'll we'll have that coffee with you. And and we ended up having a coffee with her. And Felicity was amazing. She's she's a rock star in retail. I don't know if you if you've done the research on her at all, but um, you know, she was CEO of Suzanne Group. Uh, then moved over to be a uh, VP of marketing for Gap mm. in North America. Wow. Came back and she took the Cotton On Group global. Yep. Uh, and is now is now here to grow Strandbags, right? Wow. So she's like a year in the job at Strandbags and there to, there to grow and turn into a, a big, even more of a bigger business. Um, so she's a retail weapon and she's having coffee with us, probably caught up three or four times. And, she, and basically she just was downloading and telling us what to do. And you should do this. Have you thought about this? It was like the most help we'd ever had in a, in a retail perspective. So she was helping us way before there was ever talk about investment or anything wow. like that. She was just happy to see something happening. And, and then it started turning into a, a bigger conversation. You know, she'd seen the retail store, loved what we were doing. Um, and then from a math perspective, she couldn't believe that of the numbers we were doing from the retail store, you know, because typically, you know, there's in retail, there's X footprint, you know, should bring Y dollars of, you know, but, um, but she was like, oh, you guys are doing great. What a beautiful store, you know, let's, let's keep chatting. Okay. And that's how that started. Yeah. yeah. So they love, they definitely love the store and they're yep. definitely impressed yep. by how we run it and the numbers that we run it by, yep. um, because we're profitable. It's a great marketing experience. Uh, people love the product. Uh, but yeah, at the same time, the numbers work too. Was it a was it a massive process to secure that ten point five mil in investment? Yeah. What was, it <laughs> <laughs> what was it like for you? It was big. I mean, before that, we 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 were very lucky. We'd raised a million in angel yep. uh, leading up to it. So that's almost like our Kickstarter pre, right? We had a couple of guys who believed in us, saw the the pathway, particularly the first two hundred fifty grand. Mm. That was a that was essentially a check without too much knowledge we had nothing at that stage he gave wow. us the, gave us the 250 and he said i you know we'll see you i'll see you in a year <laughs> you know which is which is <laughs> crazy it's great we didn't even sign any paperwork yeah. it's crazy it was really wow. really really crazy but um we uh we appreciate it and um so we, we grew from that and uh what was the question again what was my answer what was the what was the process to, to get to the process of the raising yeah right, right, sorry i was just thinking about that process yeah. like that was bloody crazy <laughs> um, we we uh yeah so we we did that and we we grew quite well and actually the 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 contact came you know I mean, obviously felicity reached out and there was another there's another private family office that also um followed in that round as well so the full amount wasn't just done by Strandbags. Mm. Um, so we, we had, uh, we had these two big players, uh, coming to the table with us and saying, we want, we want in. And it was a lot of late nights and just figuring out process and detail and, um, you know, uh, yeah, it, 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 it can be big, but it was actually a really good, uh, I guess, really good juxtaposition between the two types of investor. Right, so a lot of you know a lot of people think you just raise and then you do this the, all the paperwork and it kind of just flows through. But uh, what we'd found is that the family office was quite different to the um, to Strandbags. Mm. Strandbags were in literally the game. They knew they knew luggage, they knew retail, they were active players. Whereas family office were from looking at it from a pure investment standpoint. Um, so the due diligence and the, and the questions that were being asked on both sides were very, very different. Interesting. You know, so the Strandbags guys really understood the product. They understood the kind of capital outlay you needed for stock and where the efficiencies lie in shipping and how you would market X. And they, they knew all those details. Um, yep. Whereas a straight-up investor is more looking like, well, what's happening in five years? How do we grow from here? What are the market? You know, it's just very different. Right, right. Um, so... So it was interesting nonetheless, but we were very lucky to have 
um, so many interested parties. We'd definitely done the rounds, right? We'd definitely early stages. Yep. We, you know, when we were just growing, we, we probably just launched the product. You know, we, we went to one of those um, startup dinners. Oh, yeah. Uh, like a pitch kind of thing? No, it was like, it was, no, 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 no pitching. It was like, um, I think it was one of those ones, uh, Adam Schwab from Luxury Escapes hosts these, right. these dinners with some great business people around from Melbourne and Sydney. Um, and we were lucky enough to go. And, you know, nobody really wanted to have a bar of it. We, you know, we, I remember speaking to, we spoke to a couple of like VCs, one VC in particular, I, I remember just like, you know, after, after we pitched, he's like, you know, you should, you know, for us, you, you should go and speak to the, like the Meyer family, like retail, you know, you need some retail. Love. And so, you know, I just remember it's, ex- it's a classic example of just getting rejected mm. nonstop until you, you actually hit the right, the right one. Um, yeah, and which I think is part of the journey. I think it's very rare to, you know, it's easy to say, yeah, great. Hey, Strandbanks reached out on Instagram and look, they've invested. How fun is this? Yeah. Uh, the reality is we'd actually pitched so a many lot. times before that and got, just got knocked back. It wasn't, a, it, you know, it's not a SaaS product. Um, and, and a lot of VCs don't get retail, don't get physical retail. It's true. Um, this is, this is hardware, you know, and yeah. it's, it's a weird thing for VCs to, to want to get involved yeah. in. Um, so yeah. if you could encapsulate your entire fundraising experience, uh, do you have just one piece of advice for startups who are going through that journey? You know, what would that advice be? Keep at it. But the, I think the, the biggest thing is that you've got to believe in what you're doing mm. and believe in the product um, and, and not just a false sense of faith. You need to back up your beliefs with um, either with, uh, with existing products that, that are replicating that growth um, you need to prove as much as you can to yourself, not just to the investors, that uh, that this is a product that's going to work. Mm. This is the business is going to work, and importantly, you're the team to make it work. Sure, that uh, that was probably the, the biggest thing. It's not it's not about suitcases. Yep. It was about a team. It was about the team. It was about the ability of Richard and I to be able to convince somebody to say we are the right people. To, we're we're taking this. We're working full time on this. Um, you know, that, that was probably the biggest thing, right? right? Is that everyone thinks that they can do it part-time for a little bit until they figure it out. You've got to be all in and, and arguably not make any income for a year or so until you until this, this thing takes off. Right. Yeah. And so how has the company changed with the funding now? How do you plan on spending that capital or growing your team or expanding? Uh, we've spent it all. Series <laughs> B next year. It's all gone. Yeah, yeah that Ferrari at the front. That we, <laughs> no, no, it's... um. The, the, we don't want to raise again. I mean, this, okay. and this is probably the biggest thing, uh, this, I'll, I'll get to the, the question on how we're going to spend the money in a second, but, uh, we don't want to raise again. And this is the difference between, I would say super high growth American VC backed, uh, companies who are growth at any cost compared to, uh, more conservative Australian and, and more Euro, more of a European style, um, growth path where you need the funds to get to a, a certain point but you are actually gearing towards being a profitable business in a very short amount of time so that is the pathway that we are choosing to take that we want to take we don't want to continue to over dilute ourselves in order to, to gain x market share um, and to raise a hundred million dollars or so the the idea is that within a couple of years we are actually a very profitable business hmm. um, and that we can grow from from our own profitability Okay. How are, we, how are we spending the money? The main, the main thing is product, right? The, when you're dealing with a product-based business, you are constantly needing more product, product development. You, you need to be shipping products. Um, and, and it takes money, it takes time. Yep. And so, growing retail presences and all that as well. Retail is expensive. Yeah. Retail is so expensive, you know? Yeah. Startup guys and tech guys and, you know, even fintech guys that, you know, and even myself, I had no idea how expensive retail is right retail is another world bank guarantees it's the uh, term deposits it's the fit out costs and it's everything you need to be you know i mean again uh, you know we're, we're doing quite well with our one and we, we got extremely lucky with with uh, everything and how that all worked out um but a lot of bit i can see how retail is struggling you know landlords in particular just continually up to up the rents yeah uh, i can see how it'd be difficult however once those rents come back down again, I think physical retail is going to be revitalized and is, it is a thing that most brands will end up getting into. Right. Um, it, is, it is only the rental that's stopping them. 
from creating a, amazing brand experiences, physical brand experiences. You know, we're going to see this this world. Actually, there's a brand that does really well, but we're going to see this world where when e-commerce is cheap and everybody can do it now and it's never been easier to ship things online, only offline will be the differentiators. Interesting. So, yeah. so uh, porter bags in Japan is a really good example of that. You can buy porter bags from, from certain places all over the world and you can buy them online too. But only in their Tokyo store in Japan will they have this completely different range. And it's only if you go there and only if you speak to them and they, they give you the full treatment and it's amazing. Right. It is absolutely amazing. But it's one of those, it's a conscious choice they made. Yep. They're not going to distribute them and they're not going to sell them online. Yep. It's only when you come to the store. Sort of like going full circle. Even Amazon opened a bookstore like a couple of years ago, didn't they? Which is quite <laughs> ironic because, yeah, they, I mean, their, their, whole, their whole mission is to disrupt bookstores to start with. So... Or it was at least back in the day. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, we're we're physical beings. Yeah, you know, and and we need to spend our time somewhere. Mm. So sometimes it's nice to to walk around and be inspired by things, but be inspired by the world. Yeah, that's really what physical retail is about. Absolutely. Um, maybe just one more question before we wrap up the podcast. Uh, and this is really interesting. How do you live alongside strand bags? Um, because they're an incumbent in the industry, investing yeah. in someone who's trying to disrupt their core business. Like what is it like living alongside an investor who's Yeah, as, well, part of the deal was that we don't distribute ever. We don't ever connect on a commercial level like that sure. at all because um, we're totally different businesses. Their, their insights into the luggage world are great because they really do understand uh, good luggage from bad luggage, what the category does, the ups and downs of the category, the cycles. And the main thing is that they've got 300 retail stores. They know physical retail more than anybody else. Um, it, it is it is great to have those insights and and when you actually from a from a advice standpoint and a learning that I had for for myself and, and for Richard as well is that actually um, not all money is the same. Finding uh, funding from industry partners versus straight VCs is actually super beneficial. You get the one plus one is three right. outcome. Um, you get the money, but you get the guidance on how to spend it right. Um, some learnings, you know, if there's a dip in, in January because nobody's buying luggage because they're already on holidays, it's it's understood and accepted. It's actually forecasted because they've given you the insight of the, of the, the trends. Um, actually, industry partner industry partner funding has been a, a fantastic part of, of uh, the growth plan for July. Okay. So it's more complimentary than, than anything and it's... Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh, completely. Yeah. yeah, definitely. It's been great. I mean, you know, this, in anything you do, if somebody's already done something like that, you know, and, and they don't dictate, they just sort of say, well, that's interesting. You know, we would do this and we would do that, but it's totally up to you. Sure. That's, the, that's a perfect relationship. Okay. You know, I really, I, we really like that. Michael Lewis and, and Felicity. Uh, Michael Lewis owns, owns uh, Strand Bags yep. Group. Um, and he's part of a global retail chain uh, called the Fashini Group. You know, he, I've never I've never met two people who've made themselves more available to us um, than than these guys. Absolutely fantastic insights and, and assistance. And uh, you know, we we could have done it without him, but it's a lot better to do it with him. <laughs> awesome, <laughs> yeah. that, that's great, Ethan. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, if someone wanted to connect with you or learn more about July, what should they do? Hit me up. Uh, hit me up on Twitter. Twitter's the easiest at eighth a t h, and then July at j u l y. Where do you find all these awesome handles? That's <laughs> the dark places of the internet. <laughs> Thanks, Ethan. Great Thanks, to see you.